Hello, welcome to Tonebenders. I'll be your host today. My name's Tim Muirhead. Renee can't be with us today because he's in the thick of things on a bunch of really cool projects doing the sound for them. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at The Tonebenders. Our guest today is on the Mount Rushmore of American sound designers. Think of your favorite films, and there's a very good chance that Richard King did the sound on many of them. He's been nominated for six Academy Awards for sound editing, where he was the winner of four. He's the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the MPSE. He has worked on superhero films like Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, Marvel's Thor and the recent Suicide Squad, period films like Dunkirk, Master and Commander, and The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, sci-fi films like Interstellar, War of the Worlds, Gattaca, animated features, Puss in Boots, Rise of the Guardians. In addition to all those amazing films, Richard has also been the sound designer of some of my personal favorites like Singles, Magnolia, and Inception. Welcome to the show, Richard. It's really great to have you. Thanks very much, Tim. I wanted to dig into a lot of those films that we just mentioned, but first, uh, what we like to start off our interviews with is how you got into the sound world, because it feels like everybody got into it from a little bit different direction. I believe you went to school to be a painter, is that correct? Yeah, I, I was very interested in film. I grew up in the suburbs in Florida making Super 8 movies with my friends and doing art and sailing and just doing all the stuff that one does when one's a kid but wanted to pursue something in the arts. And I was leaning towards film at a, during a period, then leaning towards painting or drawing. After I graduated from college in, in Florida, I moved to New York City and just kind of um, got my feet wet and tried to find work and tried out a few different things. And once I settled upon wanting to do film, I was very dedicated to it. Landed a job with a, a guy, one-man shop, did documentaries, mostly industrials, shot them, edited them. We took them to a stage, we mixed them. And so I was able to try out a number of different areas in film. I was his camera loader, I was his gaffer, I was his assistant editor, and uh, ultimately his sound editor. He let me uh, cut the sound on a documentary that he was cutting about the building of a dam in Brazil. Very large dam, one of the biggest construction projects in the world at the time. It was all MOS. I just pulled a bunch of sound effects and started cutting them. And it, it was amazing footage to begin with. But what really impressed me was the fact that seeing it with sound was a completely different experience. It, was, it had depth. It had scope. It had, uh, it had a, uh, an impressiveness that it didn't have before. It felt like I was kind of creating a painting of these moving images that I had in front of me. And I really just latched onto that. Went on from there to cut a few super low-budget features and found the sound editing process working on those low-budget features much more satisfying than the picture editing process. When I put my sound editor hat on, I could do anything. I was only limited by my imagination and how hard I wanted to work on it. Uh, as far as adding uh, subtext and adding sense of place and all the things that are that are important in film. So really loved that process. Moved to L.A. Uh, in 1985 and um, landed at Canon Films, which at the time was churning out dozens of movies a year. Landed a supervising gig pretty quickly there and supervised three movies at Canon and kind of jumped in off the deep end, figured it out, worked with some really great people, worked around really great people who I learned a lot from, carried on from there, got out of Canon after, after three films and 
tried to navigate my way towards those better films whenever I could and, you know, learned on every job. And I'm, I'm still learning on every film I do. And it's uh, mostly still as much fun to me as it ever was. It's, I love the process. I love working with the people that I work with. So it's a, it's a happy way to earn a living. You've made quite a career out of that. It's pretty impressive. I think that when people think about you recently, they think about you working with Nolan. But you've also worked with Spielberg, Cameron Crowe, P.T. Anderson, Kenneth Branagh, Peter Weir, even Tom Hanks as director. Um, but as I say, people connect you mostly with Nolan. Since you are currently the uh, title holder of the Oscar for sound editing with Dunkirk, I was wondering if we could talk a bit about that film and uh, working with Nolan. Gary Rizzo described how Nolan likes working with sound as he hijacks your cardiovascular system, and it's about pulse, pace, and purpose. Now, how do you translate that into a Pro Tools session? Chris wants to create an experience that is uh, beyond words. He wants to create an experience that you feel that you live viscerally and feel it and he wants you to he wants you to be carried away by the story and the and what it, what you're experiencing in the movie theater it's just really about pushing every single aspect of the soundtrack as far as you can until you break it <laughs> which means re-examining how you do everything that you do that happens on every film. And it's something that I is important to me anyway, uh, that is not repeating myself and not not just using the same go-to sound effects or the same go-to sound approach on scenes that are similar from movie to movie, but rather to kind of get into the bowels of each particular film and understand it, understand how it works, understand what the characters' motivations are, what the place they're living in is like, really become a voyeur with the actors and try to experience the world as they are experiencing it. With Chris, it's it's really an exploration. He gives me a lot of freedom in the early part of the process to churn out whatever, you know, I feel is right. If he's got a specific note, I'll, he'll let me know. But there's never any spotting sessions or anything like that. We just go and I start sending... Uh, mix downs of sequences over to the cutting room. They cut them in. I get comments back from Chris. Sometimes I nail things in the first go. Sometimes it's not until the day we for, before we start print mastering that I've solved the problem. <laughs> or maybe he just gives up at a certain point. <laughs> it's very exciting working with Chris because he pushes himself very hard and he pushes those around him very hard. And he's quite inspiring to work with. I feel like I've been so fortunate in the directors that I've been able to work with because I've really learned a lot from each one. There's so many different approaches to making films. You know, you'd think there would be one proper way to do it, but (laughs) there's as many ways to do it as there are people making movies. I've really embraced Chris's approach. Um, He's a tough guy to work for in some ways because there's this constant, constant pushing which never lets up. But it's in pursuit of this gut reaction that you really only know that it's working if you you feel it. Reaching the audience on a nonverbal, unconscious level. And sound is great for that because we're, as a species, I think, we're very visually attuned and less aurally attuned. I mean, we're aware of sounds, but we're, we do a lot of editing in our heads and only really become aware of 
the sounds that seem like they're going to impact us directly. So as a sound editor, you can, you can take advantage of that and add lots of sounds that the audience perceives and takes in and contribute to the making of this experience, the film, but they don't judge them. They don't think about them. They don't spend a millisecond uh, pondering them because there, there's an assumption when you, when you see action that's in sync with a picture that it was recorded when it was shot. Uh, and so we we take great advantage of that. And sound editors create this entire world around the characters that is hopefully three-dimensional and believable and bends the audience's attention and emotions the way the filmmaker is directing them through the film. So if you're not doing spotting sessions with Nolan, as the film comes in in pieces over time, how are you getting a feel for the pace of the overall film? Chris doesn't want any let up. He wants, uh, especially in Dunkirk, uh, specifically in Dunkirk, that film was all about getting to a nine very early in the film <laughs> and then just inching up towards that 10 throughout the course of the film. It was never, it was meant to be kind of like the third act of a story from beginning to end. I just had a blast working on that movie. It was, it was, uh, it was exciting. It was it was, uh, it was super engaging. Was, I was really into the history of the period. Right after Donald Trump had gotten elected, and I was really depressed. And just to be able to come in my room and plop myself down on my chair, climb into the cockpit of that Spitfire, and kind of live in that one-week period in, in May of 1940, and uh, about which there's a, an awful lot of documentation, by the way. So you can really get into the nitty-gritty of what was going on in the world and in that particular little arena, it was uh, just super exciting and visceral. And, you know, what does a ship sound like as it's sinking? And did a lot of thinking about that and did a lot of research and found a couple of YouTube videos where they put microphones and cameras on ships they were going to sink for artificial reefs. The audio from those was pretty interesting, and um, although not usable for our purposes, but it gave me a lot of ideas. There were just a lot of sonic problems to re-examine. What uh, mortar shells sound like uh, exploding underwater? Uh, what they sound like exploding in sand? What the Stuka sirens sounded like? And it was, yeah, it was just about re-examining every single sound that happens and trying to figure out what it would be like to be in it, try to make the planes as visceral and as, as real sounding and just put you in that claustrophobic cockpit, giant supercharged engine two feet away from you. Every minute to those pilots was half an hour and every hour on that small boat crossing the, the, the lumpy channel was, uh, was, was days. So it was, I thought, a brilliantly conceived film and it also had these great really verite, almost documentary-style elements that felt completely real. Yeah, I think in a previous interview, you said that you didn't have to help the image with sound. In fact, you had to work very hard to live up to it. So I'm assuming you had to create quite large palettes of sound. In titles on the screen, there's the mole, the sea, and the air. 
some war films only deal with one of those aspects. This one's got all three going in full effect. How much time did you even have to go collect sounds ahead of time before you were getting final picture? I started working maybe six or seven months before I actually started. Actually, by the time they started shooting, I started collecting sounds, looking for sounds, figuring out how and where and when we were going to record things, making lists. So it began in a very kind of orderly, organized way, mm -hmm. figuring out where we were going to get the planes to record, where the, we were going to get the boats to record, um, all the distinct elements. Uh, we cast the Moonstone, which is the small boat the trio crossed the channel in, looking literally all over the world for the, the boat with a perfect sounding engine. I have friends in uh, in in Sweden, friends in in uh, Denmark, and uh, friends in England who are all looking over there. It had to be a, a forty to fifty footish boat with a a small two stroke diesel, or at least sound like that. We couldn't find any here. All the period boats from that era in the states were generally gas engines. But they did have a lot of them in Europe, and they, they were kind of the workhorse engines for pleasure boats and working boats. My friends in Europe did a lot of recording for me. They found boats, sent me pictures, sent me sound samples. I picked the ones that I thought were right. But we finally found the boat for the Moonstone here in Marina del Rey, actually, <laughs> uh, ironically. And happily, because I was able to go out and, and record it myself, uh, John Fasol and I recorded it and get it to do exactly what we needed it to do, which wasn't much. I mean, they're... It, it basically just sort of runs at a at a at a at a fast idle throughout the whole the whole uh, uh, the whole thing, and then there were the the oddball things like the Stuka siren that I had to just start researching on and figure out how could I record one because there are none in the world that are uh, there, there are none in the world as far as I could find. Mm -hmm. There are two Stukas <clears throat> that are complete. They're both in museums and uh, don't fly. Uh, but neither of them have the sirens fitted. They were discontinued by the Germans uh, literally just after Dunkirk. So the, the Stukas that were used in the Battle of Britain did not have them, or at least all the Stukas that crashed in England didn't have them fitted. So they had uh, the pilots hated them. They didn't want them on the planes because they attracted... They told the anti-aircraft gunners on the ground where they were. They slowed the planes down, and there were all, all kinds of problems with them. Sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you. Do you want to just explain for anyone who's who doesn't know what a, a Stuka siren is, the physics of it, I guess. It's kind of become the classic dive bomber sound or object falling from the sky sound. It's a siren that was actually fitted to the wheel struts. There was one on each wheel strut. They were quite sophisticated devices, actually. They're, they were built, as far as I could deduce, because I couldn't find drawings or plans of how they were put together. And I looked everywhere. I looked at all the German war archives mm -hmm. that I could find and... But I deduced through all the photographs that I was able to find of them that they were constructed much like an air raid siren with vents as it spun, revealed, and then closed. So it created this kind of sound that wound up as the, as the thing spun up faster and faster. This howl increased in pitch. And they were driven by little props about a meter wide that were fitted to the front of the sirens. And the pilot disengaged when he was ready to dive disengaged a, a hydraulic brake on that siren. And as the plane dove, the air flowing by the siren started to spin it and wind it up and create this howling sound that everybody knows from cartoons and TV shows. Mm -hmm. And 
But the only recordings that they've been using all these years were done before the war by German newsreel crews and probably recorded on wax discs. So very poor quality, very grainy, but they had this intensity. The, the, the sounds themselves, you can look them, tons of them up on YouTube. They have this, this crazy, almost animal-like uh, intensity to them. And you had to recreate this without any original one. So how did you go about doing that? <laughs> well, <laughs> a long series of uh, misadventures. Uh, ultimately, I bought an air raid siren, and I built a housing for it out of a 30-gallon steel drum, fitted a fan on the end of it so it could give it that choppy kind of sound, you know, like when you talk into a fan that's running, you get that kind of kind of uh, choppy effect. And uh, we took it out in the desert, fired it up. That was the main component of the sound. But then I needed to distort it in such a way that it sounded sort of like those historical recordings because that's the, we didn't want anything too pure or it, it needed to have that. I, I mean, that's what I loved about those really aggressive, just just scare the hell out of you kind of sound. And um, then it was just a long process of figuring out what kind of distortion to use and and how much to use and how to distort it. and. We wanted to kind of create levels, you know, so that it begins as this high-pitched sound and then as the plane gets closer and closer, just as it reaches the low point of its dive before it pulls out and it drops the bombs, just to have this incredible, just unbelievable screaming intensity as it goes over, um, which is the sound that was never recorded because they never do dove the planes low enough to the recorders to, to get that. Then it was just about adding stuff and trying different sweeteners and different types of distortion to, to kind of get the, the right melange of sounds. And we had a, threw in a couple of kind of secret ingredients. Uh, I think what we ended up coming up with is, is pretty close to what it, it must have sounded like. Pretty proud of that sound. Yeah, you should be. It's crazy that this sound invented to scare the crap out of people when planes are dive bombing them ended up being the hilarious sound of the wily e. coyote falling down into a cliff. It's totally weird. I wanted to talk quickly about, specifically in Dunkirk, but I think in lots of your films, the line between music and sound effects. In Dunkirk, there's a lot of play going on between the music and sound effects. There's music tones that are very similar to the airplane engines, and you're not sure, is that an airplane coming in the distance, or is that the music creeping up? There's some uh, whoop, 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 whoop kind of low bass thuds. Is that a distant helicopter? And then there's the ticking, the clock ticking that's happening. Where is the line? What is music taking part in, and what are you taking part in? Are you guys showing up to mix together and hoping that it works out, or how much interplay is going on while you're cutting? Hans and I didn't interact a lot. I mean, we would see each other. Chris would have weekly work-in-progress screenings, and we would see each other at those screenings. And so he would hear what I'd been doing, and I, I'd hear what he'd been doing, and would talk a little bit. But it was really, Chris just wanted everything from everybody all the time. It was not a matter of, you know, you hold back here for a while because the music is going to take over, or this Hans is the sound effects section, so you can kind of hang back. He wanted everything to be full-on, 
from beginning to end. And um, the way I sort of look at it, the music is are the sounds the, the audience hears and the sound effects and the world the sound design creates are the sounds the characters hear. And Chris wanted that world to be completely three-dimensional and believable, and he wanted the audience to be, you know, enveloped in this experience. So there really is no line. It's, it's uh, I can't tell, it's a matter of impact and a matter of what's going to give us the most of everything right now. So we were generally pretty much flat out on the music and flat out on the sound effects. And um, Greg Landecker, God bless him, was mixing both the sound effects and the music. <laughs> and there were hundreds and hundreds of music tracks because they, the way they constructed the music track was a story in, in itself. <laughs> it was uh, almost like sound effects created out of lots of layers. And Hans and I have worked together on other films and Hans always surprises me. He always tries something new and he always pushes himself to do, approach a, a sequence in a way that he hasn't done before. And um, once I get a sense of, his, of the palette that he's going to use, I can plan for that. But I, I hardly ever have to. I mean, I generally just focus on creating that world that the characters are in and making it as three-dimensional as possible. And then if there are conflicts, then they're easy to sort out of the mix. Mm -hmm. And often they work uh, quite well together, that both concepts work quite well together with the sort of fully fleshed out world of the film and the fully fleshed out you know, music soundtrack. So you mentioned at the mix, things get figured out. How much is your opinion uh, affecting things on the stage? Are you suggesting things louder or quieter, or are you letting the mixers? I don't keep my mouth shut. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a pain in the ass. And, um, and I, I mean, I've invested a lot in these sounds that I brought and put a lot of my time in and hard work and love. And no, I'm, I'm very vocal. I mean, you got to know when to pick your battles, obviously. And uh, the best environment is a collaborative, collegial environment where we can all talk about ideas and not feel like we're going to get ridiculed if we come up with a stupid one. I mean, you can't be afraid to come up with stupid ideas because they're going to get thrown out with a good idea. So you've, you've really just got to be brave and, and be honest. But, you know, you're sitting there with a bunch of people and as you see how the music and everything is going together, then you also get new ideas that you hadn't thought of before. And it is sort of kind of the, the moment when the film comes alive is during the final mix process. I just want to jump back a few minutes. You mentioned about how the score for Dunkirk was edited almost like sound effects. And when you won the Oscar for sound editing for Dunkirk, you shared it with Alex Gibson, who is the music editor. I, I don't think I've ever seen a music editor included in that category before. How did that all come to be? It occurred to me during the mix process that he was sort of doing the same thing I was doing. The music was very abstract. So they were able to do a lot of post-scoring, reconfiguring and layering, and they were flying in new elements all the time new little tiny bits or, or throbs or different sounds for that ticking, which were composed of a lot of different sounds, hundreds of different sounds. <laughs> and I've worked with Alex off and on for a long time. And in fact, we worked on that Tom Hanks film together years ago. I like Alex and respect Alex a lot and respect his, his taste and, and ability and, and work ethic. I thought that, that throughout the process, we were working together so closely that I felt that it was important to include his name with mine, should we be lucky enough to get nominated. And um, I ran it by Chris. He thought it was a good idea. Ran it by the Academy, and they accepted it. 
We had a bit of a problem with BAFTA. They simply looked at the job titles and said, no, he's, his job title is not eligible for, for this category. But we, I wrote them a couple of letters. Chris wrote them a letter. Uh, Hans wrote them a letter. And they eventually um, accepted our suggestion. And I'm happy that worked out. I, I think Alec was sort of, in some ways, the unsung hero of, of that movie because he was really in the thick of it for a long time and interfaced Chris and Hans because Hans wasn't always able to be around. And really, uh, he, and, he and Ryan Rubin, who was the other music editor, really, to a large extent, were contributors of the composition, at least as far as creating the layers, all the layers that it took to build up. It was very super interesting, varied, constantly changing, but driving score and um, creative of a lot of different non-musical elements as, as well as musical elements. Um, I, I felt it was important for Alex to, to be included. Cool. Well, we've talked for almost all this time about Dunkirk. I was hoping to get to a couple other films as well, so maybe we can get you back on again someday in the future. But before we go, I just want to go back to interviews you did when you were promoting Inception. You talked about the idea of the literal sound effects versus the subtext sound effects, the idea of when explosions happened, there's the literal explosions of plates and buildings, and then there's these low subwoofer sounds and growls that you placed in there as well. And I just wanted to get you to kind of talk about your process of how you find those subtext sounds. That's kind of an interesting question because that particular movie called for subtext sounds. The notion that thunder on one level is an earthquake on another level is an explosion on another level is the same sort of sound, but it's um, perceived almost in a different dimension. I generally kind of resist doing a lot of Sounds like that, like whooshes when somebody flies through the air or things that don't really make that sound. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, drones or moody drones or things like that. I always feel like that's kind of like, that's the music department's job. And I'd rather work on the stuff that's real. And that was a unique experience because it it required those subtext sounds that characters in on one level wouldn't necessarily perceive what it was, but they'd hear this monstrous sound. Yeah, we just experimented. It was just a matter of like, what are we gonna, how are we gonna do this, and what are we gonna do? And so we, we got a bunch of big uh, subwoofers and um, and a couple of oscillators and put them on one of the big sound stages here at Warner Brothers, which is fast. It's one of the biggest sound stages I think in in North America. And um, so we get this, you know, big reverb. And then we had the two oscillators, and we could make them kind of in sync and then go in and out of phase with each other and got some very interesting, just weird, uh, unnerving kinds of sounds that to me sounded like something that if you could almost like hear the echo of an immense giant's footsteps, <laughs> you wouldn't know what it was, but you just hear the sound or, you know, I get a lot of ideas from, from watching YouTube videos and there was this great YouTube video of the meteor that broke up over Russia six or eight years ago. There's a bunch of like dash cam videos and stuff. Yep. A pretty impressive sight. There was one that the guy put a camera in his window. He's kind of out in the country. And so you see this amazing, enormous streak across the sky. And suddenly the sound reaches the earth. And it is the biggest sound you can imagine. And everything shakes. The house shakes, car alarms go off, dogs start barking. That sound just really uh, 
impressed me and gave me a lot of inspiration for making something that is almost like, you know, galactic in its scope. That kind of, that kind of I think, sent me in the direction of the low end being the way to convey that idea of something immense that's, for all intents and purposes, in another dimension larger than ours or, you know, wider than ours. It worked well with what Hans was doing with the music and slowing down parts of the Edith Piaf song that was their kind of cue to go in and out. And um, we re-recorded that for Hans, too, outside on the street, so it got this kind of natural reverb, like it's almost like you're hearing the music out of the sky was the the effect he wanted to, to get. Yeah, they worked well together, those two ideas, I thought. They merged well together. So what have you got coming down the pipe next? I am working on X-Men Dark Phoenix currently. We'll be starting Wonder Woman 2 in uh, December. Well, I look forward to seeing those films and I guess specifically hearing them. Uh, Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us and hopefully we can have you on again sometime soon. My pleasure, Tim. It was good talking to you. So regular listeners of this podcast, I don't know about you, but it's not every day that I get to sit down and shoot the breeze with a four-time Oscar winner. So that was pretty cool. Maybe uh, one of the highlights of all the stuff that we've done for the podcast for me so far. That was, uh, that was really something for me. Uh, I just want to send a big kind of top secret thanks to the person that helped us set that up. A longtime listener of the podcast reached out to me and uh, helped me connect with Richard King. And uh, we are very grateful for that happening. So I don't know if he would want to be recognized. So uh, I'll just say, you know who you are. And thank you very much for helping us make this interview happen. If anybody else out there is a listener of the show and thinks that they could uh, get us hooked up with someone that would be a really interesting guest on the show, feel free to reach out. You can contact us through our website, tonebenderspodcast.com. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Huge thanks to Richard King for sitting down with me today. Thanks to Stacey Dupass for letting us bend and twist her voice on the bumpers. As you hopefully know, Renee, Teresa, and I do everything for this podcast in our spare time. So if you feel you get anything out of the show and you can spare a few bucks to help cover the costs of getting these interviews and discussions out into the world, it would be greatly appreciated. You can leave the show a tip via PayPal. The link can be easily found on our website. You can also help us out by using our click-through links to B&H and Amazon if you're going to be buying something there anyway. It doesn't cost you anything, and it helps us out. Okay, that's it for this episode. We have some really cool episodes coming up. It's been a bit of a rough go for us with free time recently because we've all been so busy, so episodes haven't been coming out super frequently, but they are going to start trickling out a little more frequently in the next little while, so get ready for some good episodes coming your way. Thank you very much. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Tone Feathers. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.